From Hong Kong, Chicago and the city of Stoke-on-Trent, this is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 93. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Johnny Sisson and Perry G. Hello, Johnny. Hello. And hello. <laughs> you should, was that like, hello, was there somebody there? Is it that, that, that kind of... Hello. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Johnny. And uh, hello, Perry. Yeah. Oh, hello. Hello, Perry. Um, right. Uh, before we get going, first of all, I just want to thank... John Bruning for being such an excellent guest uh, last week. We had such fun on that show, and it was uh, yeah pretty thought provoking in places as well. So, uh, John, uh, thanks for being with us, and we need to make sure it's not the last time you've been on the show as well. So, um, look forward to getting you back sometime. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's head over to Hong Kong because uh, Perry's had a. Bit of a bit more of a free day uh, today, haven't you, Perry? With uh, you know, not quite as much uh, in the way of work commitments. Uh, have oh, I've had a bit of a free four days. Um, oh my god, today was insane. I mean, what happened was there was uh, the first death associated with a police operation on Friday, and a 22 year old student died, and that triggered protests first of all but also memorials around hong kong uh so i went and photographed one of these memorials near my neighborhood at around 8 p.m on friday it was a very somber mood uh people were sort of lighting candles and, and saying messages and i, I shot it on cinestill with my 3515 uh 3518 canon and then i went home grabbed dinner and the riot police uh showed up at this memorial um, because a few people had put some garbage cans on the road. Uh, so they sent about, I don't know, a hundred riot police. So I went out and I, I went out again and I photographed that with, uh, um, my 35 1.5 cannon and almost got tear gassed. My, my streak almost broke. They tear gassed about 30 meters away from me. I, I just ran up to a higher vantage point to get a different perspective. Uh, and, and if I were Simon Forster, I would have just changed my lens to get a different perspective and gotten tear gassed. <laughs> you, you wimp tired, so that, that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the timing was... was uh, I ended up getting some high vantage point shots of them chucking tear gas at basically just all the residents of the neighborhood coming down to see what all the commotion was about and, and hurl insults at the police. Um, and, and this pretty much went on throughout the weekend. And today, my well, today I woke up this morning uh, to the news that someone had been shot by the police uh, at around 7 a.m. And the entire day was basically gridlock around the city and protests everywhere. So I figured, you know, my, my afternoon class is definitely going to get canceled. So I just went out and I shot all day. And, um, I ended up walking about 15 miles because all of the transit was down and it seemed like I was just always one head of uh, one step ahead of what was happening. Cause I would go to a place where I knew there were cops, but, and they were doing an operation, but that there weren't a lot of press there. Cause there was like another area of Hong Kong that was getting tear gas more heavily uh, or there was more violence. And then I would leave the place I was shooting check my phone and 30 minutes after I leave, it's getting tear gassed. So that was kind of, that was kind of my days. It was almost like 
the places that I went got tear gassed immediately after I left. Um, and then I, and then I realized that I'd walked too far and had no way of getting back. Uh, so then I had to walk all the way back. So right now, you know, I'm safe. I'm okay, but I'm a little shaken up and, and fairly chafing. I think, um, I've, I've got to say on behalf of a lot of the listeners and they've expressed this, this, uh, this kind of sentiment in the, in the Facebook group and, and, and so on that, uh, you know, Things just aren't good out there. Um, and, no. And what's happened over the over, well, the last twenty four hours in particular, uh, where there's um, yeah, I mean I've I've seen some footage of uh, a protester getting getting shot, and then there's there's also uh, something very disturbing about a um, a pro China. Um, oh, dude got set on fire. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's it it just just feels like the things are just escalating and things are just well arguably are they out of control already or not? But I, you know, I'm just just saying you know you need to be really really careful out there because you just worry that um, well no side wants to back down on this and you know we want to keep you yeah. safe. Well, I mean, from the perspective of shooting it, I obviously I appreciate the concern. I am very good at getting out of bad situations, um, but. For the most part, I find that when I'm among a bunch of protesters, uh, I, I feel fine. There, there's no there's no concern. When the cops show up, there's a pretty good sense of when things are going to go down and when they aren't. Yeah. Um, and I don't quite have the balls to get up close and shoot them when they're they're in the middle of like <laughs> beating people up. Uh, so, for example, today th- there are like different grades of cops. And the sort of special tactical forces um, are what they call the Raptors. And they, they dress in all black rather than in the riot police green. And today, when I was finally on my way home, I was walking through a footbridge uh, that I had passed earlier. And there were about 20 Raptors who just walked past me. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm not busting out my camera and shoot these guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let them go. I'm, yeah. I'm heading home. Uh, so, yeah, yeah got to remain vigilant uh but at the, at the same time i don't know it, it's i gotta photograph it especially on a day like this where i know i don't have to do anything other than this podcast um you, you know the, the thing with all of this is i got two things actually i got a bunch of shots on friday which first of all taught me that the two canon lenses are not great for low light uh because even though they're fast they are really really bad in the edges wide open and I, yeah. I realized I should probably use like my Zeiss Distagon and just suck up the extra space uh, yeah the extra bulk rather than you know gravitate towards these these small cannons which look great in the daytime yeah. um, but shot wide open on color at night it's kind of mushy and, and not not fantastic but I had a thought which you know maybe this will bring Ricardo Bion back into uh, writing reviews for best vintage lens. Um, I, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should start shooting digital uh, again for some of these protests because when I was out in my neighborhood the other night, I shot one roll of Cinestill and then I loaded a roll of Ultramax that I was going to push to 800. And I got a whole bunch of shots of the police kind of being aggressive towards local residents. And then I looked at my frame counter and I was on frame 40. Oh. And I was like, oh, crap. And so I... I you know, advanced it again and realized the thing wasn't moving, opened up my camera and the film didn't catch properly in my uh, Leica M4. Uh, so I had to basically 
like reload it and shoot it again. And so I, I missed an entire roll's worth of shots. Uh, I mean, the, the, the shots from up high were with that same roll, so I did get some good images, but I was kind of annoyed with myself. And, and on the way back, I was thinking, you know, if I had a digital camera and if I didn't have this kind of film snobbery, um, I would have more compelling images. And for, for reportage, it's kind of having the moment and capturing the images is more important than shooting film. But then today I decided, not screw that, I'm just going to use my, my Hexar RF because I know when that thing is loaded because it's electronic. So that's what I shot with today. Yeah, just bring more film. Yeah, I, you know, I, I kind, I, I really kind of agree with your thinking there, Perry. I mean, to me, the thing, the thing that I think about digital's primary purpose to me is like bad light, right? Because I uh-huh. can, because I mean, you, you know, it's really easy to shoot film in decent light. It's really. Oh, on like dark streets like that i mean at night and it's really difficult to shoot film it just is it's hard i mean and you yeah. know to me that's where digital really excels is it you can shoot in low light and you can see what you're getting and you can you know it there's so much guesswork to shooting film basically in the dark and to me, that's like exactly what digital is meant meant to do, and it's pretty much the only time I still shoot digital stuff is in like crappy light at night, which is what I did last night on my X100S, and I took a couple of film shots, and I'm like, well, this is a pain in the ass. I'll just shoot it on the X100S. I mean, it's you know, it it's like what it's good at. So yeah, there's there's something to be said for that, and you can always like get you know, the, those few film, those few shots that you really want to get on film, you can, you can always shoot that at the same time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. I, I basically shot all of the nighttime reportage, uh, wide open at one over 60. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's some of the shots, the lab had to pull out a lot of extra detail because they're under, underexposed mm-hmm. and you don't want to shoot everything at one over 60 because, even though you're not going to get much uh, camera shake at 35 millimeter, it's right. not going to freeze action when you got cops kind of waving stuff around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, but I don't. I don't know. It, it there's there's <laughs> part of me that just doesn't want to do it. Yeah. I no, I I see. I'm like that's exactly the way I think about it. It's like if I'm going to bother to shoot something important, I specifically don't want it on digital right exactly <laughs> yeah so I, I so but i mean at the same time it's like all right well there's that but there's also just the ability to on a basic level to actually get the shot you know yeah. so i i don't know that that's why i say i mean maybe there's those moments that you you save and you've got the you know two cameras around your neck or on your shoulder mm-hmm. right and you fire the film shots off for the stuff that you really really want to get but for the general stuff it's you know the ease of digital is a nice thing in that situation but the, yeah the, yeah the, the issue there though of course is sometimes is is you know there are so many things that can go wrong with film after, yeah. after shooting it assuming you've got it you've shot it correctly in the first place so it i think it's 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 a risk shooting film when something's important i know why why you're saying that and you know because you you want that film look or something like that because you, it's it's an important shot and therefore you want it to be on film but you've, you're also taking a, a risk that something may go wrong and you're not you're left with not getting the shot at all or a, a version of the shot that ultimately you're not going to be happy with which you probably would have got if you'd shot it on digital yeah that's true and you know from an archival point of view 
I do have part of me that thinks if my computer dies and my backup hard drives die, then at least I have the negative. Right. But at the same time, you know, negatives can get destroyed in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, none of it is actually truly archival if you really think about it, right? So, yeah. But, you know, I never thought about it that way in terms of nighttime. Um, to me, it was just the frustration of losing that role, uh, which, to be fair, was also a function of it being nighttime because I never screw up my film loading. But I had to load film in the dark with riot police running around all over me. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, not all over me, but all around me. And it was a very, like, rushed process. Yeah. And, you know, the normal things you would check, like, is the little, you know, film... What are those things called that that rotate? The rewind dial. Like, right. checking that the rewind dial is rotating yeah. after I caught it. I just, I just didn't do that because I loaded it, fired it off, and started shooting. Yeah. But then today, you know, I was shooting black and white film in the daytime, and it never occurred to me that film was a limitation. So I think, I think you're right about the nighttime thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just, to me, that's what digital does well is it does low, it does low crappy light really well. Cause you can kick, kick your ISO up pretty much on any newer camera as high as you want. And it's still going to look halfway decent. Um, yeah, even the M240 I have is, is not bad for that. I mean, the Sony is the obvious choice cause it's way better, but I don't, I don't want to shoot that. Right. serious stuff because i can't focus yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. fast yeah well in a in a couple it's a couple of weeks about three weeks time um the camera club that i'm part of is is organized a um light painting workshop that's going to be happening in a in an old victorian tunnel and uh, and then there's going to be uh, a madman running around with with lit sticks and all sorts of uh, weird weird things so it's going to be um uh, bulb exposure complete darkness and then light and occasional flashes and stuff like that and I, when I, I thought about it i was thinking do i, I wasn't entirely sure if i really wanted to do it or not and then i thought to myself you know what this could be done on film and I've got plenty of portrait and I've got portrait 160. And when this guy was uh, giving a, a, a talk about it, um, he was saying that that you would set your your um, digital camera at its base ISO, whether that be 100 or 200, and off, off you go. So I'm thinking, well, 160 should should do that. Um, but I think the idea about the fact I'm doing it on film is is more experimental rather than I'm thinking oh, I want to do it on film because it's going to look better. I just just want to I just want the fun and experience of shooting this on film and yeah. just seeing if it works. Yeah, and you, as long as um, you get your reciprocity failure calculations right, uh, you'll be fine because there is something fun about developing your film when you're doing light painting and seeing just how much you screwed it up. <laughs> Um, I've only ever done light painting images on film, uh, even though they're much easier to do on digital uh, because that instant ability to chimp and then redo it, I I find it takes away a little bit from the fun of that, uh, that kind of experience. I'm I'm thinking reciprocity doesn't really come into this uh, because these are things that are going to happen right in front of me in, in the moment. So it's, but if you're doing a long bulb exposure, yeah. then the light that you're painting with that doesn't really matter but the background is the background exposure if it's ah, a yeah. super long exposure um, you, that's the point it's, it's going to be in, this is in a complete 
uh, dark tunnel. So the only thing oh. that's actually going to get any kind of exposures when there are points of light or where there are flashes of light. That's the only time there'll be any exposure of anything. Oh, that doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Then just go nuts. <laughs> so that sounds like fun. Um, I just just need to work out lenses now because one of the I was thinking, oh, I'll take my one of my contacts cameras, um, the AX probably or something like that, and then I realised that. The, really the place where we're doing it i could do with something a bit wider and there's i can only go to 25 mil whereas i, I still have uh jeremy north's contacts uh g2 set and it's got it's got that 21 millimeter so i'm just wondering if i can hold on to it for long enough to be able to use that perhaps so uh that would be cool using a, a rangefinder in complete darkness just to prove yeah. that you can actually focus the thing <laughs> I, I i think i think if you're gonna do light painting and you're not gonna shoot digital um, that you should go medium format or bigger. Well, I, I must admit, I I really fancied doing it with large format. That that really was that that would really float my boat. Um, but it's that that element of risk and burning through sheets of uh, film. And more to the point, I've, I still haven't had the nerve to actually shoot color yet. You know, I'm I'm you know, <coughs> it's costing me like about a pound a photograph as as things stand, as opposed to. I don't know, five pounds or more per photograph that all of them may go wrong. And there's, you know, we're going to be doing this for probably a couple of hours. So, and you're going to want to take advantage of everything because you don't know what's going to work and what isn't going to work. So large format just is a bit, it's a bit iffy. That is really, isn't it? Um, but I could do it possibly on large, on medium format, but I could only go as my widest lens on my Hasselblad is a 50 mil. So that's equivalent roughly to a, say, 35 mil. Um, which I don't think is just going to be wide enough. So um, I'll, I'll go. Th I'll go thirty-five mil. Then you, you you can do also what what Johnny was recommending that I do um, with the protest shots and do both, right? Because then your digital can be your throwaway uh, test shots because your ISO is going to be the same and you don't have to worry about reciprocity failure. Hmm. So set it to the same ISO as your film, dick around on digital, and then just replicate it. Yeah, or I mean, you you could do much longer exposures on film and while the exposures are happening you could be shooting away on digital too you know what mm -hmm. i mean you could i mean you could set up shots on large format knowing that you're going to leave the shutter open much much longer and then in the meantime you can be shooting digital and then and then you can get really angry when you realize like you didn't pull the dark side or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so many so many ways to screw up i know so many ways to screw up yeah yeah, yeah. so, so look, but look, i mean but it would but I, I feel like large format is really good that way for like really long exposures you know because mm -hmm. you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have like you're gonna have a big big old chunk of film with loads of detail on it so and if you know you could if you're doing like light painting stuff it's not like it's almost like you can't go wrong just leave this shutter open as long as you want and see what you get you know mm. yeah. yeah well it's it's going to be a case of this is this is going to be it's an experiment and if it works yeah. then it might be worth doing it again yeah so uh we shall see um, but um on a on another note we'll head over head over to to my my world at the moment and uh, and things that i've been up to and i went out Wait, Simon. Before before you do that, yeah. can I can I jump in with two very quick things? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, number one, I gotta say that you were right about something. 
Whoa. Um, Cause yes. now you're sounding like Carl. I was just going to say about every three weeks. Yeah, yes. Yes. Sir, right. Well, you had this thing a while back where you were saying the X pen is not panoramic, even though it's in the name, it's more cinematic. And then your, your horizon thingy is, is more panoramic. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta say, I I I know what you mean now, having gone out and shot with that Horizon once. Um, I, like it, it's panoramic in the sense that it captures a sweeping vista of everything before you, yeah. right? Whereas the X Pan, it's a panoramic aspect ratio, but it looks more cinematic because it, the lens is well, the one I use is a forty-five millimeter, so it doesn't capture like a sweeping vista, mm-hmm. uh, which to some people that's sort of the essence of a panoramic view as opposed to the panoramic aspect ratio, which I've always taken to be the essence of panorama. So you were right. I'll, I'll just sit here smugly. Okay. <laughs> and there was, there, was, there was something else. Yeah, uh, the second it, thing... Oh, oh, I was going to say, if one of you guys wants to send me an X-Pan, I'll be glad to tell Simon he's right, too. No, no, no. I think what I learned from that is that I pr- that what I like about the X-Pan is the cinematic look, not the panoramic look. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Um, I was just going to yeah. say, I noticed, I don't know if I mentioned this when, when I came out with that statement, but I noticed it when I was shooting with the um, uh, the, the Minolta Poor Man's X-Pan uh, that's on loan from Hamish Gill. Uh, mm. At the same time as shooting uh, the the Horizon that was in Liverpool. And uh, yeah, they, they both got you know, a similar kind of crop through the viewfinder, um, but it was just such a world of difference switching between one viewfinder and the other between the X-Pan and, uh, and that just wide but cropped um, Minolta. Yeah, because, you know, I, I find when I'm shooting the X-Pan, the experience is like shooting with a 45 millimeter lens and then stretching it out, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to shooting the Horizon, which feels like shooting with just an absurdly wide lens with the top <laughs> and bottom chopped off. Yeah, that's interesting because my... I'm still carrying around the the Bessa X Pan with the 21 millimeter lens on it, and it's like everything to me has fallen into place in terms of panoramic format because it's it's 21 millimeters, so it's like it's that super, it's like the wide angle of view thing yeah. in that format, and it really it really works like that the. the the pocket Panavision, the Minolta, is 24 millimeters or thereabouts, which works for most things. But I'm finding the 21, which is just a bit wider, is really great. And when I was shooting the 17 millimeter, it was like so ridiculously wide. It was really, really hard <laughs> to get anything, any kind of composition that to me that seemed like it made any sense. But the, with the 21, it, you, I feel like you can still compose with it. Does yeah. that make sense? That your, your description of the 17 is almost exactly how I feel about the horizon. Yeah, okay. It's just like I look through it and there's more in the viewfinder than I'm actually seeing with my eye. And I'm like, what right. the hell? Right, right. Um, whereas with the X-Pan, the 45 millimeter, there are times when I feel like, ooh, a little bit wider would be nice, but not too much. Well, just <laughs> not, not wishing to go into that uh, perspective uh, conversation, which we've managed to escape. Um, but you do have that the difference with the horizon is you're shooting with a 28 millimeter lens which is giving you the 28 millimeter view vertically at least um, uh-huh. whereas with the 17 millimeter you've you're, you've also got the 17 mil vertically as well so that 
you know, so you you have to get that much closer to something to get the same sort of perspective or angle of view, don't you? So therefore, it's I think it's harder to hit that um, to do your composition because you've got sometimes you've just got to get too close to it to get the to get the shot that you want. What with the twenty one? Um, well, I think it was seventeen at this point. Oh yeah, the seven right because it yeah it's crazy because it has all the problems of like well to me like the thing that works about like the fifteen millimeter uh you know the Voigtlander is you do have to get really close so you get you have to get the near far relationship thing going on right. right and but the thing that bothers me about that lens is like it's so wide that there's t- usually too much top and bottom that i don't want in the frame um but it's it is really difficult in the panoramic format with a lens that wide to compose because mm-hmm. it you it's like yeah you have to get really close to, you have to have the near far relationship but then you have to have width the, the yeah it's really difficult right unless you're doing a panorama of like an elephant's ass from up close <laughs> yeah exactly you can't have so much stuff that's close to you yeah i get that yeah so it's really whereas, challenging whereas with a 21 or a 24 sort of like the x-pan you can have sort of a close subject in like one of the thirds yeah and then use the other two thirds for you know mid-ground background or different relationships yeah Right. Yeah. Whereas if you had a person at a certain distance with a super, super wide lens, either they're tiny or they're like, you know, you're almost touching them. Yeah, exactly. You either you're either too close or too far all the time, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And I with the 21, well, it, both the 24 and the 21, I feel like that's not a problem. It, it just works really well. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that somewhere in there, to me, at least, is the sweet spot. Okay. Uh, and then the other thing, um, and I hope I'm not opening a can of worms with this, uh, but we discussed it sort of in the chat earlier this week. The Canon 35 1.5 that I got, um, it's an interesting lens. It, it, I've gotten some, I've shot it at like pretty much every aperture now, and it, it has a cool look to it. But I really like, first of all, actually, the thing I don't like about this lens is it's almost the same as the Canon 51.4 LTM in terms of its build quality. I'm just not a huge fan of the way that that scalloped ring feels. Um, but aside from that, the thing I really like about this lens is the way that the uh, it's calibrated for focus shift. Oh, yeah, you were mentioning that. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the Zeiss ZM Sonar, for example, the 51.5, the Zeiss calibrated a few different configurations out of the factory and i think you can still send it back to them yeah um like some are calibrated for 1.5 some are right. calibrated to be bang on at f2 which is what i prefer and and then most of leica's lenses that ha- suffer from focus shift they are calibrated to be shot wide open which means they're borderline useless at other apertures <laughs> uh, at certain right. distances um so the way the canon is calibrated is exactly how i like it where it is bang on at f2.8 and then it slightly front focuses um, at f2 and f1.5 and then beyond f2.8 the depth of field basically is compensating for any shift so you know when it's slightly front focusing depth of field tends to move backwards right rather than forwards Mm -hmm. and so it still looks okay uh, even if I'm off by a little due to the shift like that that front focusing to compensate is totally fine but what doesn't work is 
when you're shooting at a relatively fast aperture and the focus shift stop down like one stop or two pushes the the point of focus back by like a meter or two then it just looks looks like you screwed up the image right yeah right um right, right. so it, I only discovered this when I was doing test shots on my M240. I was shooting at f1.5, and I was like, yo, everything is off uh, a little bit. But infinity was bang on. So I was like, oh, does this lens focus shift? And then I tested it. And yeah, at infinity, it's perfect at all apertures. But um, at f2.8, that's what it's calibrated for. And it's such a sweet spot for that kind of lens setup. So well done, Canon, for making that decision. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's food for thought for me as well because um, you know, one of my favourite shots I've taken this year, um, and we've talked about it, is that shot of my son that I took in a in a restaurant in in very low light, wide open, uh, with a Sumilux, uh, a spherical, uh, yeah, at one point four, and the focus was perfect, bang on, yeah, perfect, and what you're saying there is if I'd taken that with and I'm thinking, you know, I, I don't know what will be the case now, but I've got Carl's 51.4 Canon LTM. Um, and I'm there, I'm now worried now whether or not if I actually took exactly the same shot. No, I know it wouldn't be as as, as, as sharp as the, as, as the Lycra, and, and it certainly shouldn't be for the, the difference in cost. But is it going to be not just softer, but is the focus going to be out, and will it be f set more for F2 uh... or will it be for 1.4? No, when I had that fifty one point four Canon, I didn't really notice much focus shift. It was it was fine at most apertures. Yeah, because it's a part. It's a formula thing too, isn't it? I, yeah. I don't, yeah, right. Because I don't think that fifty one point four is going to have much of a shift issue. Yeah. Exactly. It's a it's a double Gauss, right? Right. Um, yeah. And it's just, is it? It's, I think so. Yeah. I mean, and it's the Sonar lenses mm. which are uh, particularly troublesome with focus shift, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They yeah they are well not not all of them you know um, there are some symmetrical designs like the Leica thirty one point uh, thirty five one point four uh, Sumilux pre spherical um, I think that's essentially a double Gauss variant but it shifts like crazy um, and then the Canon fifty one point four I swear it's not a traditional double Gauss because Canon has these sort of like fat front groups in their lenses that's like sort of bulbous and and then a smaller rear group it's not a sonar design um but yeah i mean it varies from lens to lens the the voigtlander nocton 35 1.4 uh is particularly guilty of focus shift as well as well as sort of all sonar lenses at least 50s as you mentioned it's a it's a function of the lens design there's there's nothing you can really do about it there's all these people who say you know oh i have i have that lens and mine doesn't shift and i'm like yeah it does you just you just aren't paying attention. I've just just gone looking onto uh, Google now, see if we can actually find um, a lens diagram for the fifty. Oh, looks like my computer's giving up now. Are you are you oh. looking for that at the moment, uh, Johnny? Which you tend to go off looking at lens diagrams. Which, which for which one? For the fifty-one point four LTM Canon. Uh, I wasn't. I mean, we can find it though. But I mean, it, it it's it's definitely a double Gauss. So yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it would be. Yeah, it, it, it's another it's another it, again in an attempt to bring Ricardo back to the fray. Um, it's another plus for mirrorless digital cameras like Sony's. Yeah, because focus shift does not matter for them because even right. on a DSLR, right, an autofocus lens like the Canon fifty one point two L, uh, that suffers from focus shift and 
it drives people crazy because the lens focuses wide open, autofocus is wide open, and then it stops down when you take the shot and the shift kicks in at that point. And, and then people are like, oh, all my pictures are out of focus and throw the lens away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I found a schematic now and it's showing, yeah, it's not, it's not particularly symmetrical, although it, it's yeah. six elements, as, but, as you were saying. But, uh, yeah, it's got that sort of, you, know, you, you look at it and you think uh, sonar, but it's not. So, uh, oh, I've, I've, I feel like saying, is this more like an, ult, uh, like an Ultron design? Um, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, I like it anyway, and it works really well. Um, so, which is, which, which is good news, um, especially seeing that I've actually now sold, um, my, uh, my lens along with the Helios 40. So that's gone some way now to actually paying, uh, for me to keep in my 75 mil biotar. So that's, that's all good news. And I've still got a few other things on, on eBay, if you want to take a look at them, <laughs> um, <laughs> link, links in the notes. Um, okay. Um, well, keeping on the, um, positive side of digital and stuff and uh, trying to win back Ricardo. Um, I went out and used uh, that 75 mil uh, Biotar and I also took out with me the Taylor Hobson, um, what is it, two inch and the Stigmat uh, F2 um, the, the other day because I finally had the chance to actually go out and it, and it wasn't too windy, the sun was out and I, I just wanted to go in to find a forest and try and get some uh, golden colours and things like that um, while, while there was still some left because it's a little bit late uh, for it now. And and I was thinking, well, what should what should I take? I mean, obviously I was taking those two lenses, um, but I wasn't. And then I thought to myself, well, I, I'm not. I have no plans on using these these two lenses on on film anytime soon. Um, one because the Taylor Hobson probably won't be we be with me for that long anyway. And secondly, the uh, the biotar, the 75 mil biotar, it's on ex, ex, exact amount. And I really have no plans to, to use any exacta camera. Um, and the alternative, of course, is to perhaps use a, a Topcon RE Super, um, which I also don't like, uh, which I know is quite a controversial thing, but I think it, it looks lovely. Um, but I really disliked uh, using one when I had the chance a couple of years ago. So in other words, uh, this, this lens for me is primarily a, a digital um lens uh, that, that's mm -hmm. the way i want to use it and and secondly the same goes with the with the with the taylor hobson i you know i'm thinking well i want to i want to try this on digital and i'll probably use it on digital in, in the same way as most ltm lenses that i have i only really want to put them onto my sony even though that some of them could be a little bit dodgy at the edges um but um yeah they, they just they just seem to for me i've, I've just got no great interest in using them on film um, because I can get there's an immediacy of going out there and and playing with these lenses and and, and looking through them and 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 seeing what you're going to get um, that you just don't get in the same way with 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 film and and using these these two lenses as as I did um, what was interesting to me is the the shots I've got back are probably better with the Taylor Hobson than the the shots I got with the with the Biotar but using them actually being out in the wilds. I was I was really enjoying the view that I was seeing through the biotar 
and I was just taking shots of anything because it just looked so cool uh, to look through. But the actual end result of the shots were thinking, well, that's 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 nothing remarkable in any shape or form. But I had such great fun just walking around and looking at the world through it. Uh, whereas, like I say, the the Taylor Hobson shots, I think, were probably the better shots on on the day. Yeah, that's a lot of fun to just, especially with lenses that um, you can make do crazy stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It's that it's that you know, razor thin depth of field that you can you can place on something that's a reasonable distance away and and still block you know it's still have out of focus in the foreground and out of focus in the in in the distance. It's just a fun yeah. thing to do, really. And it, that's exactly how I use my digital cameras too. Whenever whenever I get a new uh, rangefinder lens uh, or any new lens, actually, the first thing I do is I slap it on my M two forty or my Sony. And then I just go around shooting random stuff and like shining lights through it uh, to see what it's going to do. And then when I want to do actual photography, then I put it on a film camera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's that, it's that thing about lens testing, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> you can't really test lenses on film in an efficient way, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you, you ultimately you do okay. You don't learn the whole character of a lens until you've shot it on film and on digital. But you shoot it on on digital, and you've got a pretty good idea about what it's going to do when it gets onto film. I would say, sort sort of. Some stuff is, you know, like the Sony sensor is so sharp that sometimes I shoot lenses on the Sony and I go, oh yeah, okay, this this lens is sharper than I thought. And then I shoot on film and it looks like mush. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> like that Canon 35 1.5 wide open. Uh, I, I know if I'm going to shoot it wide open again on film, there's a specific type of shot that I'm going to use it for. Like that sort of subject isolation with um, sort of backlight or directional lighting from the side that's somewhat soft uh, because it, it really can't handle focusing far away wide open. It's just nothing looks sharp. <laughs> so... I'd say there's not been a huge amount happening in my week, so uh, let's let's head over to Chicago. I was just going to say, Simon, I think what you need is a Topcon R. If you don't like the RE, you you should look for an old Topcon R or an R2, which is the pre-RE camera. Okay, that's not familiar with me. That's yeah, because if you don't, it's not it's not is it's not as quite as big and beastly. It's still pretty big and beastly, but but I love I do love the look of the R three, uh, the R the R Super RE Super. I think it looks absolutely gorgeous. It's it it's a little less like it looks a little less boxy and chiseled. The the R, so yeah the the Top Gun RE always remind uh, the RE Super always reminds me of um I don't, I don't know what that camera is but one of those old like East German. Yeah, it's like an old Lucky. Pentacon or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's 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 right. Yeah. Uh, whereas it, the, it, the R looks more like a Spodmatic. Yeah, exactly. It looks. It's right. It's going to look and feel a little bit more like a. You know. Yeah, I've got. Well, I've got, funnily enough, I've I found a picture on Chris's camera pages, and it's got a Topcon R next to a Spodmatic, and it's enormous. It's yeah. It's still pretty big. It's absolutely <laughs> huge. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think it—you won't ever have to shoot a Pentax six seven. You can just shoot a Top Gun. Yeah, I think in, in the looks of the RE, RE Super, though, I I think that's the the granddaddy of the Sony um, A seven series. I think it's got a similar kind of uh, vibe to it. 
in my opinion. Yeah, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. You, just the, the, the text, uh, the logo on a diagonal front plate. Yeah. That would look nice with some tape over it, too. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, what's, 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 what's happening in Chicago then, Johnny? Oh, boy. Uh, well, I've been developing film this week, finally catching up on my black and white. I've got – I have about um, six or eight rolls left, which I might get through today, so – I'm almost done with my black and white backlog going back to about June, which is very exciting. Um, my color, I haven't even touched, which is going back to like last June. <laughs> so not this most recent June. I'm talking about 2018. So, uh, yeah, I got about 50 rolls of color to do still. Um, but, yeah, I got more or less caught up on my black and white this week, which has been good because uh, I finally gotten to see – a bunch of shots that um, with different lenses that I have not really seen. I've only had the shooting in the hand experience. I haven't actually seen the photos. So I've got a lot of, a lot of stuff to, to look over uh, with a few different uh, lenses that I have not even really seen the photos from yet. So that's my, that's my big excitement this week is developing film, which I haven't done for a while. I've got it in my head that the last time you actually did some color development, your your chemicals had, yeah, died. yeah, they had right. The last time I did it was I killed four rolls because I got absolutely nothing on them because the developer had completely died. So and I have not yet mi uh, mixed a new batch since then. So I've been kind of saving up. So uh, that's that's yet to happen. I you know when I develop stuff I like to get it all done in a pretty short window of time which means I'd probably try to develop all of 50 rolls over the course of about a week. How do you dry um, them? Uh I just hang them. But, hang but them. like I, sort of how many do you do at once? Oh, I always do four rolls at a time. Oh, okay, four is very manageable. I just saw yeah. I had an image of you with like 50 rolls of film oh, hanging God, in your no. bathroom. I was like, what? No, I actually debating whether or not whether or not to get uh, a second tank, four-roll tank, and do eight rolls at a time, but I am just not that... <laughs> I am just not that good at multitasking film developing. Like, it, to me, it just, it's way too stressful. So yeah. I don't, I don't want to deal with that, especially with color, because the, although, I don't know whatever I, I i tend to do my color at 90 instead of 103 so i can do it can i, I can extend the developing time out which I, to me just seems easier um but whatever i i don't want to do eight rolls of color at a time <laughs> so it's gonna have to go four at a time um yeah anyway that's that that's pretty much all i've been doing photographically this week although some other things did uh sort of come up this week that were interesting we've been um i don't know whether or not we're going to dive into this but i know that we've been talking a, a lot about sequential photography mm -hmm. um so i i have pulled out my 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 books related to that um and then one other thing sort of related to that is um well the, a couple of weeks ago was the uh kind of memorial service for my my uh photography teacher barbara crane and i was not able to go of course because it's on a saturday and i work on saturday but i um uh one of the customers at central camera is a 
faculty member at SAIC where I went to school, uh, um, uh, Robert Clark Davis. So he 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 brought me a program from um, the memorial, uh, which has a bunch of photos in it, which is kind of neat. It's got there's um, a, a kind of block of I don't know. This must be a hundred photos, sort of all together in a, a vertical rectangle, and it's all photo. It's Polaroid transfers. So it's like basically a massive uh block of polaroid transfers all on one page um and then there's an and then there's this really nice panorama shot of let's see one two three like four or five four by five images shot one after the other and then you know put side by side to make a panoramic shot so in this program there's you know which is just a it's it's just a folded sheet of paper but there are, are two images in here that sort of typify uh, for me what I learned from Barbara, which was how to present images sequentially and this sort of this panoramic image. Mm. So it, it's kind of it's kind of uncanny how much, you know, and it's not like I've, I've been unaware of how much she's influenced my thinking. But I mean, I look at this, you know, I open this thing up and there it is right there. It's basically everything I'm interested in photographically on one page. Um, so, and it's just nice to have this obviously, because I, you know, um, it, it, I wasn't able to make it, which I really regret, but it's really nice that he, he brought this in for me. And then he also made a print, um, that he brought me, uh, which I think this is, it's not a cyanotype. Um, I'm not sure what the process is on this. Cause it's more of a yellow background. Uh, I'll have to ask him, but he teaches the alternative photography class at SAC. And basically it's a, it's a photograph of uh, Barbara's tools, these brushes that she used for doing alternative uh, processes work, probably like cyanotype or something. And it's a picture of four brushes. Um, and what he had, what he had done was he had, uh, I guess he had a bunch of people sign this um, as like a memorial sort of thing. Um, so he brought me a print that he made, uh, for that as well. So that was, that was really extremely kind of him to do that. Um, seeing as how I, I couldn't actually make it to the memorial and I felt, I felt like I didn't completely miss out on it in a certain, certain way. So I'm sorry, go on. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm looking at the picture you sent, uh, with, it's like a mosaic of all of the Polaroid images. Yeah. And It's really interesting because I think I've seen this kind of thing a lot with instant photography. Yeah. And it it seems like there's something about the format that lends itself particularly well to collages or mosaics or sort of sequences of images. Yeah, it really really does. Which when you think about it, you know, uh, you get one image at a time spat out. Whereas if you shoot a roll of film, like a roll of 35 millimeter film, you get 36 images in a row. And yet mm-hmm. it feels like there's something so natural about shooting a series with Polaroids and then just s- sticking them together. Yeah. Yeah, I- I- exactly. Um, because they just, they're kind of these little boxes, right? Mm. And they, they do lend themselves to that uh, really well. Um, so it's, 
Yeah, yeah, and she she did a lot of this. She did these things, you know. I think she called them. Um, well, they were like grids essentially, mm-hmm. where she and she did a series called Whole Roll, where she would just shoot an entire roll of thirty six and then present that roll as basically the the proof sheet. But that that proof sheet was like the the goal from the start, you know. Um, right. So to me, it's that's a really talking about you know thinking about sequential images it's really fascinating um to think about shooting a whole role with the intention of presenting the whole role as one image right um so wait sorry sorry the idea there is essentially to that your contact (laughs) sheet is your finished product yes exactly yeah exactly um so yeah to me that's a really I I love that idea, right? Um, it's like and, the opposite of Magnum contact sheets in terms of its its thinking. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. It's like it's like conceptually from the start, it, the idea is that it's an entire role. And so there's there's this one um, uh, there's this one whole. It's called whole role, and it says Albanian soccer players in 1975, and it's a whole role of photos and what she's done is um half like she alternates between basically flipping uh the strips up and down so in some of them the people are upside down but it was sort Mm. of shot that way if that makes sense so it's (laughs) it's really kind of dis disorienting but makes perfect sense if it's thought of as something that was done intentionally from the start yeah, um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I've always been fascinated with that idea of the whole being not a bunch of separate parts, but being the thing from the beginning. Which to me, even like shooting a diptych or a triptych, it's like the idea was if you shot it that way from the start, it has a different meaning than if it just is two sort of random images paired up side by side, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I mean, just to explain for our listeners, um, sort of what what we're referring to there. Uh, there's a there's a very famous book called Magnum Contact Sheets, which mm-hmm. I referenced. And the whole idea there is they take the contact sheets of uh, Magnum photographers that are that that it contain like their most iconic images. And the idea there is to show you sort of how long they worked the scene and how many shots it took them to get that one image. So right. essentially, it's like displaying all of their mistakes before they actually got the final shot that they wanted. Whereas this is almost the opposite where yeah. you, you can't really make a mistake um, or you can't kind of burn through film. Like each image is part of like you're showing them that entire role rather than um, showing the role as an afterthought of, Oh, by the way, this is how I sort of chose this image out of the, the whole lot. Yeah. I, I've never heard that before. That's super cool. Yeah. It's, I think it's a great, it's a great thing. Um, because to me it's it's very sort of cinematic also because it kind of blurs this line where of of how time usually works in photos you're seeing you know you're seeing one essentially one photo made up of a bunch of single photos that are obviously taken at different times but they're all the same subject mm-hmm. so it all looks like the same moment in a strange way it's very it's a, that's a very peculiar thing in still photography because it doesn't you know there it's always an isolated moment but when you when you take a bunch of images and put them together, it kind of collapses that idea of time into one image. 
Wait, so this series, this series of Albanian uh, football players, h- how big is the final image? Because if you're showing the whole contact sheet, surely you have to print it like enormous in order uh, for it to. It says here the mural was seven feet by oh, nine feet. Mur- mural says says it all. Seven feet by nine feet. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. that format is really constraining, right? Because like when it's mural size that that totally makes sense because then each image is almost the size of like a normal photograph right um because right. what one of the things that i find that i'm struggling with is um when, I, when i'm shooting x-pan pics and you know instagram limits you to 16 by 9 mm-hmm. uh, or 4 by 5 if it's a vertical shot and so a lot of the times what i do is i put my shots together in triptychs or diptychs but that yeah. I often find that a it's a struggle to figure out which shots go together, what kind of story do they tell, what does it look like aesthetically. But b I find that when I put them together, the impact of each individual image is diminished, even if the whole is in a way greater, greater than the sum of its parts and sort of right. tells a collective story. So it's something that I've been almost forced into doing by Instagram, and I just I haven't grappled with this theory of how to construct these in any meaningful way. Um, yeah. So, so if you have any thoughts in terms of like how to just approach thinking about that conceptually, that'd be super cool. Well, so the book, the book that I've been sort of recommending, um, and it's funny because right now there's a, the Facebook group for, um, the, the half frame group is doing a, they're doing a, I guess a challenge this month. Um, where it's diptychs and it's all about that idea of of putting images together so the book that i've kind of have been referring people to or that the book that i think about for this is um structure of the visual book by keith a smith uh and to me it's it's sort of like it's like a urtext on this stuff because Mm. it's it talks about sequential imagery and picture relationships and it talks about it as almost like a musical score and how you score images um and i think it's really helpful because it it's like it provides a vocabulary for how to think about how to speak about and think about uh sequential images um and and he says something right at the start about this and there's a chapter on picture relationships and um it's it's about the single picture as a compound picture. Yes. And and what he says is the use of many pictures requires an understanding of the single the single picture and that understanding is there are no single pictures. A picture does not exist in isolation. Every picture is a compound or an implied compound picture, right? So mm-hmm. it's that's to me is like the key thing is that once you put them in context with each other they're really, they are no longer single images. It's part of the whole. Right. So it's right. So it's like how, how it adds to the whole versus what it is as a singular image in isolation, then changes the, changes the whole meaning of all the images. Right. Okay. So, so let, let, let's put this um, sort of applied in context. Yeah. Uh, I just sent you guys a link. This is something you've seen before. Cause I asked you for your advice on this. Um, but this image or triptych is a series of three X-Pan photos uh, that I shot on a tram in Hong Kong. And I initially asked whether you guys 
thought it worked better if I flipped the middle image because originally all three people are sitting oh, yeah. at the front of the tram and they were all on the same side of the frame sort of looking in the same direction. Right. And the two things that came out of this were, number one, I think we all agreed that flipping the middle image uh, made the image stronger, I think, because, you know, it creates a little bit of balance and tension. Your eye goes from one side of the frame to the other. Yeah. But as I also feel like even though I really like this final product, I feel like it removes from the impact of each individual image uh, yeah. in, in a way, too, because, you know, there's like the reflection in the first one. The light is softer. It's less contrasty. Um, the girl is quite compelling. The expression on the woman in the bottom and the traffic lights quite compelling. So those like individual image elements, you never really get to spend time on because they've come together in this one sort of triangular composition. Yeah, but I guess the thought is, I mean, to me, they're more interesting as a single image made up of three parts than any of the single images would be on their own, right? Right. Like, that's kind of what I take from this image, especially the version where you've flipped it, um, mm. is I, I mean, if you look at any one of those single images in isolation, I don't think any of them are as strong as the three together. Yeah, so I right. that's I agree, and so I think it, you know that tr it's a trade-off, right? That when you combine them into one image, right, they they can no longer stand as individual images. Yeah, and and so it's that that idea of do the three of them together convey something stronger than each individually? I I mean I personally think they do. I know? think so too, but I think you yeah. lose you lose something of uh, from each one as well when you combine them. And that's what I struggle with because I feel like I've been forced into this by Instagram. Um, so <laughs> right. sort of more, more and more, I've been just putting black borders on the expand shots that I want to show individually. Right. Uh, but in the case of a triptych like this, it was almost by default I, I put them in a triptych because they're so similar. Yeah. Sure. 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 And, and looking at the image of um, the collage or, or the grid that you sent from Barbara Crane. Um, I mean, I can't see what each of the images is of, but I'm noticing, for example, that there's this like star-shaped thing that appears yeah. over and over again. It's almost like a um, wow. The the word is it's a, it's like a motif in the image, but it's not. They're not next to each other. They're sort of scattered around. Right. Right. And I wonder w whether you have any insight into the logic behind that. Uh, behind the. Just the, the arrangement, because if you gave me this many images uh, as she has in this in this grid, oh. and you know you want to put them together, I, I wouldn't know where to begin in terms of what order to put them in. And I think that's the sort of heart oh, of the sequential what you're photography you're yeah. talking about, right? Right. So I think that's where okay, and that's where exactly where I think this book I mentioned comes into play because it talks mm -hmm. about exactly that. It talks about what happens when you put certain images in a certain order. And I, and I think, um, well, I think with the particular image, oh, sorry. <clears throat> sorry about that. I lost my voice there for a second. Maybe Simon can maybe cut that out or something or I can leave it, whatever. Um, yeah, I think that, so I think that, so there, I guess two thoughts, right? When, 
it becomes a sequential image. And I'm just, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten by one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. So this is ten by fifteen. So it's mm -hmm. it's it's fifteen rolls of ten images. So it's what a is that one hundred and fifty? Yes, 150 images. Okay. So it's 150 images that are all of a similar subject. And I, I know that – so I have actually this um, photo up a slightly bigger version on my computer screen. Uh, and I know that they're all sort of like flowers and fungi. So they're they're all like – and they're all of a similar color palette, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there are some repeated similarities to those images in there, but it, I think that's the, I, I guess it becomes more about at that point, the fact that it is that grid of 10 by 15 and they're, they're just, they're no longer separate images, but because they're all thematically related, it just presents as one single image rather than a bunch of individuals does that make sense like at a certain yeah. point the at, at a certain point it it just ceases to be the one thing and becomes the other wait dude i just had a revelation so you you totally do this with your instagram account right <laughs> yeah okay yeah you, I'm, I'm looking at your instagram account right now and it makes so much more sense viewed as a grid <laughs> yeah um because you have these repetitions of images in groups of three right Right, right. I had never noticed that before, and it just it looks so much better now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah, I mean that's and that's why I go slow with Instagram because like I only I always pick the three images that are going to be together in a row. Like I always right. want, yeah. And but then like the bigger there's then generally there's then like six or nine images in a row that are related to each other. If that makes sense, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but like all, like every single all there all my Instagram like the, there's always three images in a row that are related, yeah. Right. And then it's usually your, a block of six or nine that's actually related. Your your Instagram feed for me has just gone from like <laughs> random stuff to <laughs> like art with intentionality behind it. No, no, I'm looking at it right now, my mind is blown. Well, but that's why I don't post that much on Instagram because I, right. I, I always want to have like the relationship between the images before I, it's not like I just post them. They're pre-planned to be in a three, uh -huh. in a set of three. So like right now I have all this film to go through and actually what I need to do, I realized is I've been really bad about making contact sheets because what I need to do is I need to contact sheet all my film because what I want to do, what I do is I go back through, you know, 20 rolls of film and find three images at a time that are related so it's uh -huh. a much yeah so it becomes way slower right? are there vertical relationships too between the groups of three because um, i'm seeing a couple of sort of compositional or thematic uh relationships between different rows but that may just be sort of a function of what you were into shooting at the time well th no that th there are but i mean i think it only that only comes from the fact that maybe like there's nine images that happen to be uh, like related somehow um mm. so then it becomes because they're all nine are kind of related that there will be relationships vertically between them also um, but I, yeah, to me, it's more about, I, so I very rarely shoot anything in portrait orientation also. I mean, I almost always shoot in, 
you know, in horizontal in landscape. Um, so yeah, I mean, even when I'm making diptychs, like that's kind of like the one time when I work in horizontal in verticals, if that makes sense. But right. I, I, yeah, I, I very rarely shoot anything in portrait orientation. I just don't like it. Cause it breaks that consistency too. When yeah. You have a series. Right, 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 right. Like I've got a, I've got a few of the X-Pan pictures that are um, single verticals, but I don't do a lot of that. So when you, I, I'm noticing that when you have verticals or horizontals, there's always, it's either in the middle right. or they're flanking the middle image, which is the other way around. It's never sort of horizontal, horizontal, vertical. Right. Well, yeah, because I feel like it would the, the it would throw the pace off, right? Because so it un, un, unbalances the row as opposed to right looking right, at right. individual images. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean it. But 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 that's like literally my the thinking I took from working with Barbara was that mm-hmm. anytime you present images together. Like, it's like, even when you're building a portfolio, you have to think from page to page, like how do the images relate as you're turning the page and how do they relate if there's like two images facing each other with the, you know, a page open, how do they relate to each other? And to me, it's like, really, I mean, it's like, it's like a make or break, you know? I mean, if you're presenting a portfolio of 20 images, it really makes, it's really important what order you put those images in. Um, and it can't just be a random thing because the images relate to each other one after the other. Right. So mm-hmm. that's, that's where I feel like this book, it, it's like, man, I couldn't even imagine doing this stuff without thinking about the whole idea of picture relationships first. Um, right. because there's, it, it, it makes such a big difference in how you think about how you think about the images. Like I can't look at I can't look at a photo book and not think about how it was constructed that way, right? I can't just think of it as a page after page after page of single images. It has to be thought of as like it as a a, a whole, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so cool because it this to me is is sort of you know paradigmatic of people who studied art versus you know people like me who didn't, because um, I, I would never have noticed this. And then once you say it it makes it so much more interesting. Whereas the thing I've been struggling with is like, well, what order should I post these photos of this protest? I guess chronological order. Cause that right. tells a story. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 No, I know. I know what yeah. you mean. I, I totally know what you mean. It's really difficult, isn't it? When you start to think about a series of how, how you want to present a series of images because it, the, the viewer, the viewer doesn't know the context. They don't, I mean, they, you might yeah, have unless ex- you put a cap in. yeah right because you might have experienced it like you could put it you could put it in an order and say these are chronological this is the order it happened in but for the viewer it doesn't necessarily it doesn't it doesn't, matter. It doesn't matter right because they weren't there so you can put them in a different order and still oh, yeah it's because <laughs> now I'm looking at my own feed and I'm thinking oh crap. I have all these images where I've just posted them sort of after I've developed them, the strongest images from the role in sort of chronological order. But I'm looking through them and I'm like, you know, there are multiple protest shots that I have where there are umbrellas in the image. And these would have been so much better. Oh, right. Yeah. I rather you. than as part of 
a chronological depiction of one individual protest. That makes sense. No. Yeah. And that's, that's art versus reportage. Well, yeah, see, there you go. I mean, that, that, that's to me, that's the key. It's, it's, it's think what, um, how are you conceiving of what the purpose of the images is? Right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean like they're art because you put them in a different order. It can still be reportage, but they can, the images can unfold in a different way for the viewer, I guess. Do you, do you think then it's always, do, how do how am I going to frame this question? Do you think it's it's usually stronger to have images that are uh, that have visual similarities rather than say thematic similarities? I mean, for me personally, yeah. I mean, I would rather have I would rather have some visual connection between the images and then let the rest of that fall together. As a result of put as a result of the visual similarity, then other similarities fall into place. Does that make sense? It's almost like a yeah, it does. It just when I when I'm thinking about um, some of my favorite photo books by photographers like Sebastião Salgado or Fan Ho, yeah, um, that you know when they're broken up into sections, I often notice that there are images that are visually similar, right? um, But they're often separated. Uh, so that you get kind of clusters of uh, clusters of diversity almost, right? Yeah, exa- that's a very good way to say it. I mean, and I, I think that's what photo books that are really good, I think that's what they do well. Because um, you don't want to flip through, you know, e- even if you're looking at pictures of, say, um, uh, an his- a historical conflict, right? Yeah. The, the images of individual, for example, families um, in their homes that have been destroyed are very powerful. But if you flip through sort of 30 of those in a row, it does become a little bit desensitizing. Sure. Whereas yeah. if you have images of different individual conflicts, you know, where photographers, I think Kodelka does this really well uh, with his images of the Prague Spring as well. You see sort of oh, different yeah. dimensions. When you get to that image of the family staring straight into the camera, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And then you, you wait a little while before you get to the next one. But each series... Um, that's what I mean, sort of by clusters of diversity. Yeah, I, that, that's a great. I think it's a great way to say it. It it completely makes sense to me, and I feel like the best photo books do that. Like they, I feel like they do that almost naturally. You know, um, yeah, but no, yeah, it, it, the, it makes sense. Because um, it works for a photo book, but not for an Instagram feed or an individual collage. Yeah, but I. But see, that's kind of what I like about Instagram, and I guess why I think about it as a portfolio is if there's there's a rigid enforcement of a certain presentation, like it's always going to be three images at a time, right? And to to me, it becomes like you have to embrace that then in how you present the sequence of images because by default, it's the only way you can make it. It's the only way it works, right? So I feel like it then shapes like how the images get presented. Like, you know, there's some Instagram accounts where people will post uh, like, let's say nine images together and it makes one image like without borders, basically like the images flow. Right. Right. It's like the same idea. It's just more obvious when you see uh, when you see things like that, where it's like, it's almost like it's happening, but you don't know it until somebody points it out. 
Does yes, that make sense? That, I mean, that's exactly what I'm feeling right now. My mind is blown. I, I like, I'm seeing Instagram more as a potential artistic medium than just a marketing platform. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, and that's I and that's what bothers me so much about Instagram is <laughs> that it does that, which is it, it's it it it's like it's such a rigid um, way to be forced to present images. But then it's like it surrounds it with all the other bullshit that's Instagram. So it's, right. you know, I mean, this whole ethos is, I think, the reason why both of us prefer all of us, Simon included, now because um, we've converted him. Why we all prefer old film cameras to modern digital cameras? By Ricardo, uh, <laughs> be, because of those limitations that they they, right. they put on you. Um, it, it almost like instills a sense of a, a sense of greater control and freedom when you're shooting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I to me that makes sense because you, you, there is a difference between a roll of film being twelve or twenty four or thirty six images, and I have this memory card, and I don't know. I think I can get about a thousand twenty eight million images on this card. <laughs> I mean, it's it. That's what I mean. It becomes there's no when there's no limitation. I mean, I was I was doing this last night. I do it every time I shoot my X100s. I'm like, oh well, I kind of like this scene here. I'll just shoot about twelve different shots, and one of them yep. will be really good. I mean, that is freaking how digital works by default. And you tell yourself I'm not going to do it, but then you come home and you're like, "What the hell? I shot 500 pictures right. of this <laughs> one thing. Right? Why? Right? Because you can't. Because you can. <laughs> yeah. Whereas when that- I shoot film, I find that I shoot a roll of 36 either as individual images, yeah, one at a time, or I shoot like the entire roll one thing, yeah, or I shoot like groups of six. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because there's the medium itself enforces somewhat of that thinking on your shooting, right? I've shot one scene or or thing sort of with six. I feel like, okay, I'm I'm done. So the scene. So the the answer to all our problems is that we're all going to go out and we're going to find old 512 megabyte. SD cards <laughs> that you can get about 80 images on. <laughs> Probably well, on not Sony, even, I think. not on even that. Sony, I get like yeah. So that's what we have to do is we all have to shoot on memory cards that are less than one gigabyte and it'll be like shooting on rolls of film and you can't go back and, and delete any images. And you have to buy that new uh, Fuji camera with the, the, the screen that's hidden so that you can't oh, chip. Yeah. Or an M10D. Or an M10D. All right, I'm on board with this. <laughs> right. Well, moving on. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have been here through through for the last 20 minutes or so while we've had that discussion. But uh, um, as as we said earlier, when we're in the the pre conversation, we weren't sure if we we're going to do the deep dive or not. So we've we've got a deep dive into. Um, Diptychs and triptychs to happen in a future episode, because um, we've just had the uh, uh, the taster session there. Um, um, oh, I was going to say that that's full of flat already, hasn't it? Um, 
Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's read some damn emails. Yes, yes. There, there, there are emails, aren't there? So uh, yeah, which is what we were saying. We were going to make this an email show. So. <laughs> Um, let's, let's go for some emails then. Okay. So now we're going to read some emails. We're going to read some emails, uh, uh, <laughs> starting with Jared Tremper subject, great guest equals great shows. And we, we're just going to summarize this email to say that Jared thinks our show sucks and so we have guests, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's worth noting this is going back a while as well i mean uh, yes it is, is the 23rd. we've we've not really been doing email so uh we, we no we haven't so all right so jared says gents i just finished listening to episode 90 going to the movies with s pavetta uh what a great episode it was well i always enjoy the interactions of the most excellent trio of hosts spanning the globe the truth is that your greatest episodes are when you have guests on the show Number 90 truly solidified that for me. In fact, I probably will listen to it again. So two hours invested becomes four, but that's the point. I find I become more interested when you have guests on the show. I hope that continues even as I enjoy the host trio as well. There's something that sparks the collective creative flow when a guest comes on the show. Nice alliteration there. Great work, gentlemen. Jared Tumper, Kerry, Illinois. Thank you, Jared. There is something in there, and actually, just just on that front, I mean, episode ninety uh, with with Bill. I mean, uh, I was going to say Jared, and you've read it out as S. Pavetta. It's Bill Pavetta or William W. Oh, did I ever? Oh, yeah, yes, you, right. You read, it, you read it as it was uh, written. I'm just just right, right. that one out. So it's uh, yeah, that was Bill. Um, but that I think before we actually had Bill on, I'm not sure if we'd actually had graham on a little bit before but we actually went quite a way we probably did about five episodes with just just the three of us um and then uh and then we've had you know, before that we had people like um isabel Cudes and, uh, and obviously then uh then graham from the Sunday 16 podcast and uh and, and bill and uh yeah there is a difference between an episode with a guest and, and one without and uh i'm, I'm sure jared's had enough uh <laughs> this this <episode laughs> already um so um but uh yeah yeah we we do enjoy having guests and there's there are times where you know having a guest on can can bring out some well some almost special moments really so uh and and we've had a few of those in the in quite a few relatively recent episodes with our guests so um yeah, yeah. It's, it's great to have guests on and especially when they've been as good as the guests we've had this year really i, I mean the the episode with bill favetta was fantastic I, it was one of my favorites yeah. to record but i also think that having guests on just focuses our conversations a lot more <laughs> right um, because, you know <laughs> In a in a burst of self reflection here, there are times when we discuss behind the scenes things like let's do an entire episode on lens flaws, um, <laughs> or an entire episode on uh, focus shift, right? Or these kinds of things. And we're like, yeah, that'd be super cool. And then and then loads <laughs> and loads of other stuff. Yeah. So guests are awesome, but I think we could also have focused conversations if we are willing to be a bit more disciplined, which I'm not sure I am willing. To do <laughs> well, I, you know what I think. I've always thought this is that that it's always best when it's just a conversation and it goes all yeah. over the place, and that's like what guests do because you don't know what they're going to bring to the table, yeah, right? Totally. I mean, you don't know where it's going to go, and it's like the unknown is what's interesting, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Okay, right. let's uh, let's crack on. We've got plenty, so we've got okay. Jeremy North. Now. Next up is Jeremy North. Subject: Nikor, Nikor, Nikor. Should we? Which which one do you guys vote that I go with? I know how Nikor. you guys say it. I'll go with Nikor. I'll say Nikor. All right. Subject: Nikor. Uh, hello, <laughs> hello, Simon, Johnny, and Perry. Hardly a week goes by when I don't think I need to email you about something in the show. Then the next show appears, et cetera, et cetera. So first things first, Simon, it was so good that you drove down to Cheltenham on Sunday to meet up with Graham and me. I just wish I could have arranged for some sunshine. I think between the three of us, we must have made only a half dozen pictures and all of them at that spectacular water feature. Blink, you'll know, blink and you'll miss it he says secondly thanks for sorting out the g1 problem i still have no idea why a bit of grunge would stop it from working anyway some of the discussions we have made we have had made me rethink my collection of cameras not the least when i was talking to you about my love of the contact g2 <clears throat> the upshot is that i need to trim down drastically phase one is to look at my nikons Oh, that sounds so weird. Uh, given that you are classic lens chaps, I want to ask you to give me your thoughts about Nikkor 50 millimeter lenses that I have. Nikkor S Auto 1.4, Nikkor H Auto F2, and Nikkor 1.2. Going back a couple of episodes, I agree with Johnny about the Canon F1. It's the only Canon camera I like. Yes, it's big, but the build quality is exceptional and it is butter smooth. Um, I was also interested by Johnny's comments on the wildlife in Chicago. A year or so ago, I watched an amazing doc about peregrine falcons. In it was featured a family of peregrines which lives on the balcony of an apartment in Chicago. Unfortunately, this program is not currently available on BBC's iPlayer, but I'm sure there are ways of finding it. It was called Super Fast Falcon. Thanks, chaps, for the brilliant podcast. Well done, Perry, for like fitting in like so like well you've taken it to a whole new level of geekery uh keep safe uh out of the way of the tear gas jeremy not graham the real one wow there's a Ooh. lot in there so the main question there is about the nikors right i mean mike yes i'm, I'm gonna bat something back to jeremy here which is which 1.2 the 50 the 55 or the 58 oh right yeah well, well he says 50 so I think we've got to take it to as he as a meaning oh, of fifty one okay, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that one. Or the one point four. I uh oh, oh, the I mean they're all good. I <laughs> I gotta tell you this the F two I think there this is this is the foundation of my case to be made that the perfect F stop for any classic fifty is is F two. There's something magic that happens when you don't have to like stretch it out to 1.4 or something else. Like F2 is mm. just ideal. I, I know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, lenses that are slightly slower. Yeah. Um, they're very often better all the way through the aperture range. Right. Yeah. And I feel like that, that I feel like this lens in particular just really shines. Like the 1.2 to me is really interesting at 1.2. I mean, I think that lens renders remarkably wide open. Um, but I feel like the best all-around performer is the F2. Yeah. I, well, I, I agree with what you're saying about F2 50mm lenses. Um, I've said it many times that the 
the, the, the lenses that come on the just ever so slightly wider, the 1.9s, 8s, 7s, they most of those leave, leave me cold. Um, but I do like my 1.4s and I like 1.2s. Um, the 50 1.2, I've not actually used that one. I've used the 55, but I think they, they, they're very, very similar in the way that they work. And I think they look different. I, I like the 50, I like the 55 more. Oh, okay. Well, I've, I've not, well, I've not used the 50, but f- from what I've seen in the photographs, <laughs> I, I'm not really discerning much of a difference there, but you've, you've seen that, but I'm, I found that with the, the 55, when I stop that down to F2, it becomes incredibly sharp at F2. Yeah. Um, it's a brilliant lens at F2, better than it is at F1.2, certainly. And one, I'm not sure if it does one does 1.4 or not. I think it's one of those things where there's a big gap in between 1.2 and the, the next step, oh, I think. Yeah, there's no no click stop in between. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the case. The, uh, the Nikkor S uh, Auto, um, I've not actually used that one. I know some people have been. Carl has mentioned that lens in the, in the past, and he wasn't a big fan of that one. He preferred the uh, the later AI or the AI, AIS. Certainly, I'm a fan of the AIS 51.4. I think it's an absolutely brilliant lens. Um, so, but, yeah, and that F2, it's just got a great reputation. So, um, But I just want to go back up a little bit just to... Um, uh, talk about the problem that he had with his G1 because when I met with him, um, he, he mentioned and this is when he, he'd lent me his uh, G2 set. He also I also suggested he bring his G1, which he told me there was a problem with, just to see if I could get it fixed for him. And uh, the good news was that yes, um, it was a relatively easy fix. And and what had actually happened, the it, it had a roll of film in it, and I think the roll of film had been in there for some time. And it appears, and, and this certainly goes to be the case when I had a little chat with with Jeremy after, after this was written, actually, that uh, there must have been some moisture um, that had gotten, that got into the camera um, and uh, and they hadn't actually dried it out because what, it, what seems to have happened is the emulsion had stuck to the, just when you open the camera up, um, it, it's just above and below the shutter, there's quite often the, the, like some shiny metal rails, usually chromed or something like that. They're very, very smooth and they're like, almost like guide rails. I'm not sure if they, they may even be that. And what had happened, the, the emulsion actually stuck uh, to the to the chrome above and below uh, the shutter. And so you would actually oh. try and take a photo and it would just it wouldn't go uh, because it, the, the film was stuck. And uh, and this, the solution was rip the film out and clean clean up the uh, these these guides and luckily the the uh, the camera worked after that which was which was good news so that was a bit of a weird one that was how the the film had actually stuck to the inside of the camera. Wow! Yeah. Crazy. Um, Simon, I, wait, I, I want to go back to the Nikkors for one second, yeah. um, because I, I think you know the AIS fifty. Uh, and the 51.2 compared to the 55, I think people like those ones because they're sharper. Um, but, you know, when you take a really fast lens and you stop it down, often people say, oh, the 1.2 is just as sharp as the F2 stopped down. But I kind of agree with Johnny in that I think the slower lenses often have A, the sharpness, but B, something else about their rendering that you don't get with a fast lens just stop down, even if it's sharper. Uh, I mean, a lot of my lenses come come to mind. The WA Cal I've been shooting with recently, it's an F3.5. 
you know, and it's it's super sharp wide open, but I think my other lenses that are faster are sharper if you stop them down. But that lens has some fairy dust sprinkled on it uh, that I just love the way that the images look. There's a kind of, I, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, the, the transitions, the tones, the kind of crispness um, yeah. to the way they look. And I don't think I get that, for example, with a, certainly not with like a 35-1-4 stop down. Yeah, and I mean, it, like an obvious example to me is the Simicron that you have, Simon, that collapsible 50 F2. <laughs> like that, that is a magical lens. And nice. I feel, and I, and I just, I feel like that there, there are several 50s like that that are just like absolutely magical that, there are faster versions of those lenses to be had, but it doesn't mean they're better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Interestingly enough though, I've, um, I've tried the, uh, one of the later, uh, Leica R 50 millimeter Subicrons. Um, and it was a decent lens where it left me completely cold. Um, Yeah. It didn't just didn't do anything for me in any shape or form. It was, there was nothing wrong with it in the slightest. And, and I wouldn't say that it was too sterile either, but it just, it just, I don't know. It just, it just didn't connect with me at all in the same way as say stopping my, my, my Zeiss play not down to F2, for instance. Um, I'd Mm. prefer to do that than use the Sumicron as in the Sumicron R, but the LTM Sumicron, oh, that's just a, it's just a brilliant lens. No two ways about it. Yeah. Wow. All right. And uh, we've got another, we've got a, uh, a second part uh, to that email. Um, oh, did we? Okay. Oh, I was going to say, I know exactly the peregrines that he mentioned. They're fairly well known here in Chicago. Um, I mean, there are, there, there've been some families of peregrines downtown that essentially live in the high rises uh, for quite a while. And that, yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, they're they're cool birds. So, all right. So there was a Jeremy North part two. Nikon part deer. Is that right, Perry? <laughs> well, it's a bit. It's a, it's a bit like the Hot Shots film, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> part deer. Deer. Okay. Sorry, chefs, but. To my last ramble, can I add another 50 Nikkor Nikkor to the list? It's the 51.8. I'm sure there are several versions of this lens. Mine is the one with the rubber focusing collar and F22 painted blue. It has rabbit ears, Jay. Um, well, we've we've already slighted anything that's under under F2. Of, but wait, it, <laughs> was this the one that that Carl was so fond of? This 51 AI. If the, if the yeah, 22 is in blue, the AI. And then, but it's the bigger, I mean, this is a really good lens. It's a, it's a, it's a really good lens. Um, but yeah, I think he, this particular version he's speaking of is extremely well-regarded. Yes. They're nice. Yeah. That's, that's, is that the one that's also known as the long nose? Yeah, it's the long, right. It's right. It's the, it's the, it, it's, it's physically longer, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, the is that the one we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. The, the longer one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really, really nice lens. Yeah. So yeah, keep them all. So, so yeah, they're all good. <laughs> they're all good. You can't go wrong with those lenses. Come on, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, are we going on to the next? Yeah. Uh, slick, from, slick Rock, I think, is the next one. Uh, and this is from S- Stephen 
Shabiel. Shabiel. Steven Shabiel. Otherwise known as Slick Rock. All right. That's better. Slick Rock. We'll just call him Slick Rock. Random thoughts is the subject. (laughs) Oh, boy. You always know you're in for it when it's the subject is random thoughts. So, uh, hello, Simon, Johnny, and Perry. I want to thank you for the podcast. It's been one of many I listened to during my one-hour commute. I also binged several episodes while driving through the Utah backcountry earlier this year in search of ghost towns to shoot on film. I found some good ones. Usually I just listen to and don't think about writing to podcasts, but I felt inspired to share some random thoughts related to recent episodes in no particular order. Uh, and then there was a colon after that in no particular order, which means we are now going to have a list. So to start the list, the loud sound you hear from the Fuji GS, uh, sorry, GW693 and the others in the family is not from the shutter. The leaf shutter is almost silent as far as I can tell. However, the frame counter is making a loud bang with every shutter release. Maybe a trivial thing since the camera is still noisy, but at least the shutter isn't causing vibration to blur the shot. Indeed, this is true. Uh, Next, I love the sound of the robot spring releasing. I have a a Royal 36. It's the most practical robot because it takes 35 millimeter film and shoots normal 24 by 36 frame. By the way, the Zeiss 50 F2 and the Schneider lenses for this system are tiny and sharp as razors. Have you adapted any of these for digital? Next, uh, I wonder how Simon is getting along with the Metalist. I love this camera. Yes, it's big and heavy, not more than the GW690, but the industrial design is awesome and the and the lens is amazing. I attached a photo shot on Portra 160 to show the quality, although the camera has some idiosyncrasies to avoid uh, busting the shutter and auto frame stop mechanism. It is easy to use once you learn it. Speaking of Kodak, have you ever tried adapting Kodak Cine Ektar lenses to digital? They pair best with Micro Four Thirds due to the fact that they were designed for 16 millimeter film. Even with that, the shorter focal length vignettes heavily, but the 63 millimeter F2 and the 102 F27 work quite well. They are lenses that look both sharp and with a bit a bit dreamy when shot wide open. Uh, they also have some swirly bokeh. So this makes a pretty nice combination of lens characteristics. Side note, do close lenses serviced my 102. The focus there was frozen from lack of use and now it works like a charm. Finally, my thoughts and prayers go out to Carl's family and friends. Like many listeners, I didn't know him, but felt like I did in some way. He's missed, but his spirit lives on through your podcast. Thanks for indulging my ramblings and hope all are well. Slick rock. Right. Well, there's a, a few things in there. Um, uh, Perry, any comments on the, on the Fuji um, shutter, not being the shutter? Well, I mean, he's right. We, we had that discussion uh, about the Bronica RF six, four, five, and you know, it's a leaf shutter. And then it has that weird little meow, of the caulking. Uh, yeah, he's right. But, you know, it's loud, but it's not as loud as this. <laughs> what, what, what was that? In the Bronica S2, of course. Oh, okay, okay. Um, that that reminds me. There's a. I picked up a, a Petri uh, camera. I don't know which which one it was. Um, but man, that's got a seriously loud uh, shutter on it. I, I don't know if the the foam's 
deteriorated uh, on the on the the, the, the the mirror damper or, or not, but I couldn't actually see any sign that it ever had any. Um, but my word, that's a that's a loud camera. Um, uh, other things, um, robot lenses. I have actually adapted the Xenar. Yeah, the Xenar. I think it's a oh, is it a thirty-eight millimeter two point eight? I think it is. I think that's what it is. Could be. Um, and I put that onto uh, onto my Sony. And that worked absolutely fine. There was a little bit of oddness going around in, in the corners, uh, but that worked quite nicely. Um, so yeah, and I I've, I've done the same. I uh, I have used the forty millimeter Zenon, and also oh, the uh, the forty one nine. Yeah, the forty one nine, and then also the seventy five. Oh, is it seventy five? Four, three, I think it's three, three point eight. Three point three point eight. So I had both of those. I those I've recently traded uh, along with my code at my uh, my Olympus XA. I traded all of that to get that uh, M Rocor. Um, so I don't have these any longer. But I but I did adapt them, um, and they yeah they work they work very well. I mean those are tiny little bundles of brass and chrome, and they're heavy, super heavy lenses. Um, but yeah, they worked, they worked really well. I just, you know, I, th to me, it wasn't worth hanging on to them for that reason alone, because I have Zenons for exacta, which pretty much render exactly the same, uh, which I, I still have. Um, but yeah, they're, those are interesting little lenses for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, Metal. Johnny, do you have a sorry, Johnny? Do you have a, a robot biotar? Uh, I don't, but we had one at the shop um, about a month ago. Because uh, I would, a, I would imagine that would render quite differently from the Xenon. And I, I would think so. Yes, that's the yeah. one that I want to try the most. Yeah, I, I, I would think that it would. Yes, I mean, if that covers full frame as well, that would be awesome. It, it just does, I think. Yeah, they they do just barely because it you know, it I mean it yeah I mean they 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 do although there's a little more funkiness to them because they, I mean they barely cover you know exactly yeah well, yeah. well that that Zeno I mentioned was was a Tessar yeah even I liked it um, well there you go <laughs> so, there you go. Um, so uh, then there was the question about how am I getting on with the medalist and that actually ties in with um, the email from Jeremy North because that was the camera I had with me when I went to visit uh, Jeremy along with uh, Graham um, and the weather was awful I mean it wasn't raining it was just cold and it was just gray uh, so there, was no, there were no colors or anything and uh, so I, I literally took two photographs I think both of which were real proper tourist photos of uh, Graham <laughs> and Jeremy by this fountain um, it was just one of those things I've, I've got to do something uh, it was that it was that kind of attitude and but what I realized is I didn't enjoy using it for those two photos. And I'm now mm. thinking I'm not entirely sure if I really want to use the medalist anymore. And the reason being is I really hated the shutter button. It just So uh, Yeah. So so both both you and Johnny in this episode have alluded to the concept of bad light. And and I, I don't want to push back against that a little bit, because I, I personally don't buy into the idea that there's such thing as bad light. Just sort of what you make of it. Because that kind of grey, soft lighting is perfect for portraits if that's what you're going to be shooting uh especially if you have portrait loaded into your medalist yeah but it just yeah was, yeah but just everything around was gray as well yeah no that's fair but i mean you could have done some beauty shots of graham 
That's true. You could have done that. Yeah. Yeah. You could have done that. Yeah. I think I did get a shot of grain with the with the biotar. So I took that with me um, when he was um, trying trying uh, to load his Bronica and failing miserably. And I caught him at just just the right moment. So that was that was a, a a nice shot on digital. I've got to say, probably better than anything I'm going to do on film on on that day. But more to the point, though, I just I just didn't enjoy using the camera, uh, which mm. has bitterly disappointed me. Uh, but so I was I was really hoping to love it, but uh, I, I I didn't. But I've got about I think another seven photos left uh, to take. Uh, fingers crossed. So that that might change. Right. Oh, that's of, the roll up portrait I sent you, right? Um, if you sent me one six, because I've I've been gifted two rolls for one twenty. One was four hundred, and one was one sixty. Yeah, the one sixty is the one I sent you. I sent you a roll. That's the one then. Yeah, it was it yeah. was yours. I uh, sent you four hundred and thirty five mil. That's it. Because I wanted to use the one sixty, because I wanted to get as close to wide open as I could do. Um, so actually, the dull weather was sort of helping me achieve that, um, but. I don't know. There was, it just, there was just no inspiration there. Uh, but we had a nice meal, and I and I came home with with a, with with two contacts cameras and, all, and most of the lenses in the set. So that that made me happy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so thank you again, Jeremy. Um, and uh, the other thing there, uh, adapting Kodak Cine uh, lenses, was when it, when I started reading this, I was thinking no, no. And then he mentioned the one on the. 102 millimeter f 2.7 i thought oh i've got one of those <laughs> um which i have and problem is though it, it's still with some kind of proprietary mount which is removable uh, but i haven't really found a way that's easy to adapt that to uh well to put some kind of screw thread on there and then ultimately get it onto micro four thirds but i have seen uh, some photographs taken with that lens on micro four thirds and I've got to say, it's fantastic. It's quite possibly the, you can't really say the best, can you? But I'm going to. Um, it's, it's quite possibly the best lens I've seen on micro four thirds. Um, it seems wow. to be able to do just about anything. It's just a beautiful, beautiful lens. There's so much character in it. Um, of course, it becomes a, a telephoto lens, a you know, 204 millimeter lens effectively. So it's going to be quite limited what you can do, but you get up close with things and do bokeh shots or do uh, portrait portrait work with it. And it's it's beautiful. I don't know if it's a uh, biotar design. It wouldn't surprise me because you certainly do get uh, swill with that. Um, but yeah, fantastic lens. That is. And I think anything that says Ektar on it, generally yeah. on Kodak, is a damn good lens. Yeah. Yeah, the no Seamount twenty five one nine is a cute little lens. It's a lot of fun to play with. Okay, um, and uh, just one last point on there. Thanks for your uh, for your comments about uh, Carl. There, he's never too far away from Arthur. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I mean, I yeah. not to go on off on a huge tangent, but I think about Carl all the time. Like I. It's weird. I mean, it's like I, I, part of me still does not believe Carl is gone. Like he's going to just show up. It's the weirdest thing. Um, I have another friend who passed away not all that long before Carl. And I still keep thinking he's going to show up. So I don't know. It's the, it's the oddest thing, but yeah, thank, thank you for keeping Carl in your thoughts. And he is, he is always here. So thank you. Um, okay. Linus Trigg is next. And Linus is sending us, oh, hey, this is apropos, isn't it? Uh, subject, general thank you and top core SLR lenses question. 
Hi, guys. I've been listening to the podcast for a few months now, and I just want to thank you for your excellent work. I have a quick, I have quickly become one. It, you, bleh, you have quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. And I always feel inspired to go out and shoot as well as go online to buy lenses after listening. <laughs> <laughs> On to my question, Colin. Uh, you, I, I seem to find a lot of top core SLR lenses and cameras around at local auction sites, but I know absolutely nothing about top core apart from Perry's love for some of their rangefinder lenses. Do you guys have experience with their SLR lenses? And if so, what are some of the favorite gems, gems to look out for? Uh, cheers from a Malort loving Swede and keep up the good work. Linus Trigg. All right. Oh man. Uh, 58, 1.4, 35, 2.8 and 25, I think 3.5. Yes. And the 100 millimeter two eight while you're at it. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I feel I've got to add something into this now. Um, <laughs> the first, first one being the, that, uh, Linus is a Malort lover. Um, I, 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 I get the feeling it might not be Jepson's Malort that he's drinking there. He might be drinking it from the from the old country, so it's, which is a little bit. No, man. He posted a long uh, thing after that episode where I um, <laughs> where we talked about surströming and Malort. Yeah, and he had this long explanation that surströming is basically like devil semen, whereas Malort is, <laughs> you know, and that comparing the two of them is is totally unfair. Yeah. And and that I, I agree with that. That sounds about right. Okay, um, okay. Other other things on this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I've I've actually used the fifty eight one point four, and I was and it left me cold um, mainly because I was using it probably on that top Canari super, which also. Left oh me cold. yeah, you got yeah. Left me you, damaged you... actually. I think it's a better way. To put that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so something that we we've got to. Uh, Point, point out here, especially that he's, uh, Linus has suggested he doesn't know a great deal about top core lenses. Oh, yes. There are, as far as when we're talking about SLR lenses in particular, there are two mounts. Um, yes. And you've got the RE top cores and you've got the UV top cores. Right. And there's a huge difference. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think we could probably sum it up with um, uh, RE good uv bad <laughs> yeah well oh yeah insofar as the re is basically an exact amount and the uv is a proprietary weirdo mount yeah and so good luck finding adapters exactly. yeah they're, they're they're you know it's funny the other day i i came across uh i was browsing and there are some there are some adapters out there um they're mostly home, yeah they're mostly homemade um uh so your mileage may vary on those, but, but top, top, top stuff, it's sort of like Petri stuff. And the, the, their, the later Topcon SLRs are very poorly regarded. <laughs> so the, the lenses, you know, I, I don't know. Some of those UV lenses might be halfway decent, but they're yeah. sort of, they've, they've, they sort of take on the stink of the, uh, the the later SLRs, so yeah, yeah. Was, so generally, generally people avoid those. Yeah, I was probably unfairly malorting uh, those uh, those those later lenses. It is it is possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that thirty five is really something else. Yeah, it's that's kind of like the only reason I I still have my Topcon <laughs> is, is so be, 
Yeah, because of the thirty-five to eight lens is just incredible. So you you've got that lens. I do. Yeah, yeah because that that was the thing. I I must admit, I that's one of the lenses that's on my list that I want to try. Um, yeah, and that's largely because of that article that we've. I think we mentioned it in the in the past, but you know, there's a press cutting of a of an article where they uh, tested rigor, rigor, oh, right. rigorously yeah. tested the lens and, it, and the the lines per millimeter uh, that came up on it make it probably the sharpest <laughs> lens ever made. Um, if you believe the test that is that was done in the seventies or whatever it was, right, so, right. Uh, I, I need to try this lens. Yeah, that's a it's a it's a special lens, definitely. Yeah, it pops like crazy. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, are we going to move on to Daniel Dodd? Yeah. Okay, Daniel Dodd says, "Oh boy, Daniel Dodd, subject, where do I start?" <laughs> Okay. Uh, what a great episode. There was so much to take in this week. And he's writing October 30th. So it was a, this was a few weeks ago. Um, I listened to the, I listened on the way to work and heard the whole thing again on the way back. So why are Canon rangefinders so cheap? Perry isn't wrong, but he's not accounting for the price of finders. Say you're buying a Canon L1 or 5L and a set of 35 and 50 millimeter Voigtlander Brightline finders. You're now in what I call beater Leica M2 territory, meaning if you know where to look, you'll be able to get an M2 for almost the same amount of money. Uh, th those early production M2s with the button rewind and no self-timer that collectors don't want act as a ceiling on rangefinder prices. Whenever I see an Olympus SP or Bessa R series go for around 400 euro, I think to myself, why bother? Get a like a dude. And I say this as someone who kind of hates on the brand. I don't own a single like M mount lens and probably never will. Uh, from a purely financial standpoint, however, their bodies are often make the most sense for shooting L39 mount. Best regards, Dan. And then it says in brackets, Oh, and I gotta figure out how to how Kofi works. Okay, that's not required to get your email read. By the way, you don't have to make a donation. Well, so yes, I was going to say there is a happy ending to this story because Dan actually managed to work that out. So, thank oh, you, Dan. well, that's great. <laughs> oh man, um, like a couple of quick things on this email. Uh, number one, you, you don't have to use a Brightline Finder with uh, the L one or or five L. Because the 35 and 50 are perfectly usable. Um, this Johnny and I both like to use. Well, Johnny likes to use the external for everything, and I like to use it for 28 mil. I, I don't use the external viewfinder for 50 uh, or even maybe 35. I don't know. Um, and and then on price, I, I don't know where are you getting these M2s at this price, even if they're completely beaten. <laughs> if so, just buy all of them and send them to me. Uh, no, I got my. He he does have a .de on his email address, so I have a feeling that maybe in Germany he is still finding relatively pretty cheap uh, M2s. That's possible. I know the the Canon 5L2 cost me sixty US dollars. Uh, so that plus the price of a finder is you, okay. you can't find it. But that's Perry because you're in Hong Kong. So, yeah. So for the rest of us trying to find them, they are now pretty pricey because we really have no place to get them other than eBay Japan. That's like the only place where they show up. 
Tessa are is they are less than 200 euros here. Yeah. Um, so, here, D- Daniel, here's what we'll do. Uh, I will send you hundreds of Canon <laughs> 5Ls, uh, every single one I can find. Um, and, and if you send me an M2 for every three of them, uh, <laughs> that, that'll work out nicely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I know where he's coming from, though. I mean, it you know th- there is a case to be uh, so you can even find even here it, where I am. Um, actually, M twos are not nearly as common as M threes, at least where I am. But yeah. you can you can find an M M three for probably seven or eight hundred dollars on a good day, and it's going to need an overhaul. And then here in the U.S., that's going to cost you minimum. 200 more so let's say you bought the camera for 750 now you're at 850 now you're but you're basically you're pus- pushing a grand on the body no matter what you do so from i guess from my way of That's thinking right. yeah i mean i got my canon p for 160 bucks it, it had just been serviced yeah. and i got my 35 millimeter finder for i think 150 my Voigtlander uh-huh. and I, and I got my, well, it depends which lens you want to use in there, but uh, my, my the lens, right. Yeah. But, but then my, so my 35 F2, I think I splurged on that cause I really wanted it. It was like around 300 or 350. So I still have the entire setup for less than the price of the M2 body serviced. Right. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I know, I know what he's, I know what he's saying. You're, you're right. You can't think about it that way, but to me, it's, uh, I can't go in a thousand on a body and then not have a finder and a lens for it, I guess, is my way of thinking on that. Yeah. Although, um, I mean, if we're looking at the absolute low end, if he's talking about beater beaters, yeah, uh, occasionally you can find, because M2s are not as expensive as some of the other models for some reason. Yeah. Uh, and so you can find beaten up M2s for like 400 pounds if you're mm-hmm. really lucky. They will need a service. Right. And, and you're, I still, I still think the Canon is a better deal. Uh, yeah. If you're just talking for your buck. Right. Right. And I got to say, I, I think the button rewinds are cheap for a reason. I hate that button rewind shit. Yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. I really despise that button rewind the, thing. It's like Exacta, <laughs> I, I shot a little bit of the Exacta Varex VX. Yeah. And it had I was like, what the hell? I have to press this thing down when I'm rewinding. Yeah. Through the Yeah. And of course the button and the and it would be one thing if it was like on the bottom where it's easier yeah. to hold. But it's in the middle of the camera, and it's like made up to like you know German standards. So they probably put a piece of freaking spring steel in there. So you have to like, you know, you have to really hold that thing in. Yeah. Although I mean, if you hold it vertically, it's a lot more comfortable. For yeah. 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 I was, I was going to say some good news on my uh, M2 front is I I don't have the button, but I also don't have the self timer. Which yeah, that's, see to me that's perfect. You got so. a good one. Yeah. That's that's like perfection. And yeah. Actually, that, and that's another thing. Actually, it's probably just because I think we let's let's pause the emails and tell another time now because we've we've still got quite a few to go and uh, so we'll we'll do them justice on the on another episode uh, what's left. But there's uh, we've been having a chat with a, a few other fellow podcasters and there's a, been a bit of a debate going around today about the viewfinders in. Um, 
comparing the actually it was an M2 versus some of the best models and oh man really yeah yeah and they had a long conversation with Rob Jameson where I was shooting pictures through like every rangefinder to show him the viewfinders <laughs> I didn't know this existed sorry go on yeah well it's uh, yeah the people in this in this conversation it's, it's like the ultra low ISO ultra low ISO club um so you've you've got um Ed Conde, uh, Michael, oh, what's his name now? Bart- Bartosek. Um, and uh, I think there's another person I've already forgotten. Uh, oh, no, I almost got it then. Uh, Konopinski, Pin- what's, his, what's his first Jason. name? Jason, Jason No Gas November. Yeah, that's, that's it. So I can't remember exactly which people were on this. And there was also Dustin um, from the Grainy Days podcast was talking about this as well. And his M2 viewfinder is darker than is better and i suggested well there's something wrong with the m2 there um, and uh, eventually johnny piped into this because you've seen enough of both of them and uh, you have yeah view. yeah i think what i said was the, the brightest viewfinder i have ever seen on a camera period was an m2 fresh from dag's handiwork mm-hmm. uh gold don goldberg um, I mean, like shockingly, I couldn't believe it. And this camera, when I sent it in, was like literally the viewfinder was all full of fungus, and the patch was like, you know, it, it was it was just nasty. It, it had a pattern all over it, and it like I couldn't believe how clean it came back. So I mean, a really bright M2 is, you know, yeah, as a thing of beauty. But I mean, my my. <laughs> My my Bessa is like okay yeah all right yeah it is it the M2 is that incredible and my Bessa is probably ninety percent of that so I'm like yes. it's not really that different at the end of the day it's unless so, the thing that you want to do is walk around and admire the patch, um, <laughs> which I could see that there's probably some people that walk around with their Leica and like look through it and go God this patch is so bright <laughs> you know but and then and then when they when they're done admiring the patch they then just wind it on. Yeah, right. Exactly. Just the wind is just so good as well. Right. Yeah. Maybe they get their pictures back and they're like, I don't remember the patch looking like this in this shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but dude, the, the Bessa viewfinders are really good. They are. Uh, yeah. Even the patch is really nice. Yeah. I uh, it has some curves. The, the, the drawback of the Bessa viewfinders is not the brightness of the frame lines or anything. It is just the baseline. The base length, right. Yeah. So your accuracy of focus is going to be lower because yeah. um, it's got a significantly – it's like the baseline is about half as accurate as an M3. Yeah, right. So it's, it's, it, it's, betw- it's between – it's basically a little bit better than like a, a CL, right? Uh, it's a little It's a little bit longer like, than yeah. – it's like in, somewhere right. but up the scale from a CL but not, not it's close closer to, to a CL though, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so in terms of brightness, they're up there, but I agree with Johnny. You know, the M2s, they can – the M2s and the M3s, because they're so old, they can vary wildly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have had two Leica M2s, and the second one, which I kept, the viewfinder is so much brighter than the first one, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, I, like, this, the one that I'm talking about, uh, there, there, was a, there was an M6 at the shop at the same time. Yeah. And, and there was no difference between them. The M6 was no yep. brighter than this M2 was. You know? My M6 and M2 are the same brightness. I think yeah. my M4 is pretty much the same as well. 
Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, ha- the the first M2 I had was was much dimmer. So you do have to shop around a little bit, you know. And then if you're buying an M3, um, the early M3s they they can look quite a bit dimmer because they have a bluish tint, or a mm. lot of them have a more bluish tint uh, to the viewfinder versus the later ones. Mm. Um, I, I, just to uh, re- harken back to that conversation I was having with Robbie J. Um, after I showed him all of the viewfinders, he came to the conclusion that the M4 was the one for him. Uh, and there's merit to that. I've, I've been using the M4 more than any of my other Leicas recently because I, I just love this thing. It's so good. Part of it is a viewfinder. Wow. Okay. Well, let's let's bring things to a close now. Um, and I've already just mentioned there that uh, Dan Dodd was... Uh, he, he managed to, to fulfill his quest and uh, made his way to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com and found our page uh, because he made a donation to us. So thank you very much, Dodd. And uh, we've got a f- couple of others as well uh, because uh, James Thorpe and Brian Walworth donated to us as well. So thank you both. Um, along with uh, Nigel Cliff, uh, he's uh, put in this. What did he say? Um, Please put this to the free the Hong Kong one fund. So uh, he's he's predicting your uh, incarceration there, Perry. Oh God! Um, but we've we've got we now, we now have a fund to help you get out. So um, so so that that's that's all good news. Um, Cheers. And, Cheers. Uh, and also from York Wilson, um, Perry, Johnny, and Simon, please have a coffee on me, as I am not allowed to have any caffeine anymore because it makes me thirty-seven percent more jerky. which is what happens with johnny when he doesn't have coffee (laughs) yeah right exactly exactly okay um all right so we will we we have plenty more emails and we're just gonna have to come back to those at a it's another time now um uh perry have you got anything any other any shout outs or anything else you've got to get off your chest before we disappear uh no, I don't think so. Other than don't tear gas me if you're a cop. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Johnny, how about yourself? Uh, wait, what was the question? Was this a shout out <laughs> yeah. opportunity? Shout out and anything else you've got you've to get off your chest. Uh, well, those are pretty different things there, Simon. Uh, that's a shout out versus a rant opportunity, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's let's do the shout outs for this one. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Uh, um, uh, no, I just wanted to thank uh, uh, Robert Clark Davis Clark, as everyone calls him. I just wanted to thank him again for um, the the print and the program from Barbara's uh, Barbara's memorial. That that really kind of made my I don't know what my my week my whatever much more than that. It was really kind. So shout out to to him. Uh, he's a goofball. He's really a funny guy. Um, uh, what else do I have? Uh, I think that's it. I did my Andre shout out last week, right? I didn't forget that. Did I? Okay. I did that. Okay. So I did that shout out. No, I think I'm, I think I'm no, no, no. I do have one. I have, I have one. I just remember what it was. So I wanted to shout out to, uh, Rallin Banderab who was in the shop on Friday. Uh, he was in town his wife was in he was in with his wife and she was stuck out by o'hare airport for a uh well not stuck she maybe she was enjoying being in rosemont um 
for the a convention and then he got to like bop around downtown a little bit and he came in the central camera and we had a a big old chat about different cameras and lenses and all that he bought me he brought me a roll of uh Frania film um Ooh. yeah that 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 low speed Frania stuff so i'm i'm very much looking forward to to shooting that and we just had a great conversation and it was the, you know it was great to great to meet you in person rollin so thanks for thanks for coming by and hopefully we'll do that again sometime excellent and uh i've just got my usual shout out and that's for the six towns darkroom club in stoke-on-trent we meet on a tuesday night from seven o'clock and if you want to come along then just get in touch with me um and on the subject to get in touch with us uh perry how can people get in touch with or follow what you do wait before i plug my social media johnny yes did you did you buy any lenses this week uh no yes simon did you buy any lenses this week no neither did i hey we did it (laughs) (laughs) wait are we supposed to be crediting like jason for that this is like the no no gas november is that what this was lenses the first week of november so no no it has nothing to do with jason oh okay all right i I, it's it's right. been a while since we've gone a week without buying a lens. I know I haven't bought any lenses much at all lately. I have really bought very few, and I'm looking over. I'm like I'm looking over my eBay right now to see if that's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wait. I'm going to purchase history. <laughs> I feel like I'm on Springer. <laughs> that's a lie. Uh, oh man i'm checking i'm checking too because now i'm not sure. i am as well now yeah <laughs> we're all like did we buy anything <laughs> not that we buy lenses all the time yeah. no i mean i traded i traded for stuff does that does that count does that mitigate it? does that mitigate yeah if no money changed I hands I'm, i bought film i bought some uh yeah, that's <laughs> expired, fine. expired film uh, as you be yeah, i I have not bought a lens since October. I'm looking at my, uh, this is full disclosure. I, I bought a $45 auto tack 35, 3.5, which we talked about. That's the last thing I bought. That was like October. It was like two weeks ago. Yeah. Well, it was October 15th, 14th, 14th. That's like, that's fully over a month ago. Almost. Almost. Fully almost <laughs> over a month. Fully almost not quite a month. Um, I did get, so what I what I guess, but this isn't a lens. I got a I finally after about three years got a Voigtlander or I'm sorry a Yinan uh, DKL to M42 adapter. Um, okay. because I want to put again I want to put I want to experiment with putting um a couple of DKL lenses on my uh my Petri Penta because I think they'll just go peachy on there. So I did get an adapter. Okay. Is that, that's fine. Okay. Adapters. And, and I think we also, there was a conversation that is buying film gas or not. And, and it's not unless you're buying like vintage film. Yeah. Or weird Lomo weird stuff. stuff. Right. So film and it's so it's like charging the battery of your camera. You just, right, 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 right. So, so film and adapters are, are okay. Yeah, it's just cameras and lenses that count right. as cash or okay. accessories that are totally unnecessary. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Flickr at Perry G or PerryG.com. Okay, and Johnny. 
Uh, you can find me on Instagram, but you won't be able to follow me. So <laughs> and we have we have an email about that, don't we? <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah. You just have to wait. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know, I had to lock down my Instagram, and now I'm like, don't even want to bother to go in there to even do anything on Instagram. So you can you can try to follow me on Instagram. I mean, good luck. Um, at System Photography. Someday I'll do that. I'll go in and I'll approve all the people that are waited to, waiting to look at my wonderful photos, apparently. Well, uh, I was going to say, after after this episode, I think you've got to. Because, <laughs> I mean, we spent about 20 minutes talking about your feed. So okay, I, I will. I will. People out there, they'll be queuing up outside for it now. I'll go. I'll go ahead. It's like it's like it's like a Trump. It's like a Trump convention. They start for five hours. They're waiting and they're yelling obscenities at people just waiting for their chance to get in and see the wonder, the wonder. I think people, yeah. have, got, people have got a one, a one week opportunity now you know, to <laughs> apply now if you want to get in. Otherwise, it'll be next year. <laughs> um, All okay. right. So if people want to write into the show, what's, what, what would uh, be the best way to do that? Well, as we have proven here today, if you send an email to classiclensespodcast at gmail.com, there's a damn good opportunity to get that email read at some point. Eventually. So eventually some point you will get your email read i mean these we're reading stuff from october it's not that far back not by your standards no <laughs> yeah, it's all good yeah. yeah it's all good i mean you know i'm i my my i'm looking at my gmail inbox which i had to log into to get all these emails from simon and it says i have eighty one thousand unread emails so you know this to me a month old is nothing <laughs> So anyway, so yeah, you can send an email there um, and you can, of course, follow the podcast um, itself at classiclensespodcast.com, which is a great thing to do because you can get all of the, uh, not only see the podcast there, but you can see the show notes for each podcast, which is just like a veritable treasure trove of stuff related to uh, each episode. So check that out. Um, and while you're at it, uh, while you're at it, where was I going with that? There was one other thing about the podcast. Uh, would it, would it be about how other ways to oh, listen to the podcast? Yes. Well, it would be that you can not only listen to the podcast, but you can see the words that we're saying as actual like letters and stuff. If you go to uh, YouTube, you can. I still have yet to do this myself, but you can go to YouTube and you can apparently listen to slash read the podcast and listen to it and read it at the same time. Cause it's like a video that's captioned, but I guess I don't know what they show for the video. And for last week, you can join the eight other people that have viewed. <laughs> <laughs> because YouTube is the future and it's going to be big. So that's why we're on YouTube. So we can get eight views. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So go over and do that and have a great time. Um, uh and I, that's all the ways isn't it uh just uh if if you want to put anything on instagram and you like us yeah go go to best vintage lens because they have all sorts of goodness there that's you know that that's vintage lens related so check that out for sure even, even though perry not perry uh, Ricardo's on strike at the moment. Still no, he's back now, right? Is he? Is he back now? Is well, no. Well, I, I tried to get him back at the beginning of this episode. Oh, of course. Until, yeah. Yeah, uh, so everything's going to be fine now. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we talked loads of digital today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was at least 10 solid minutes of digital talk today. That's it. Okay. And yeah. uh, 
for me, if you want to see other things I'm involved with, um, Twitter is a good place, uh, and you can find uh, me on there as Simon4. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. You can find us all in the Facebook group. For t- oh, I always get the wrong one first. Classic uh, <laughs> Lenses Podcast. That is our main Facebook group for the podcast, and um we also i say we i'm not sure if johnny does that much in photography with classic lenses but there's the enormous group no. photography with classic lenses and i hang around in there as well uh, I, I i don't have that much desire for self-abuse <laughs> i can't i can't do that group anymore sorry well is it it's 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 just gotten so <laughs> Go on, say, say it. You know, you no, can, you I can just can't. I, I can't. I just, I can't. I can't even talk about it. It, it <laughs> it's like, it's like fanboy hell. I mean, it's, it's like every time something pops up, it's some, it's some new petty bullshit that people are fighting about in there. I just, yeah. it, I, I, what's wrong with you people? Come on. Yeah, yeah, I, I muted it too because it's it started to have shades of DP review, and that place is the worst. That place is the worst place on the internet. You know, photography with class lenses is still totally fine. It's a great place to go look at photos. Yeah, but reading the comments on DP review makes me want to just—I don't know—it makes me want to throw things. I, I I think it's a it's a, a very different league to, uh, to to those places, and I think. Oh yeah, no, I'm not comparing them at all, but I, I think it is. You know, w- with size comes, uh, like all forms of social media, right? When you when you reach a critical size, the the, the general level of yeah, yeah, it's th- what is it, thirteen thousand plus now on yeah, it's uh, some somewhere around eight thousand or so things started to go. Yeah, yeah. I, I still anyway. go there all the time to look at pictures from specific lenses. Um. But I don't post as many photos there as much, partly because all the photos are public, and I, I don't really want to post some of the shots I've been posting lately publicly. Uh, um, right. That's true. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although I will say, I, 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 you know, the other thing you can do is you can follow this podcast if you're not already. I mean, we have a Facebook page for this podcast, which is Classic Lenses Podcast on Facebook, and there's I think you know 300 plus members in there who are very active and nice and uh, fine people on many sides. Uh, so anyway, you can do that as well. But uh, just, just one thing about photography with classic lenses. I think that's probably, I can't think of a better resource for yeah. learning about classic lenses. That, that's true. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, I think something that... There's a tool on there. Um, this is quite radical now. I'm going to say now. Uh, there's, there's a tool on that on that page, and it's called the search tool. Yes. Oh yeah. And you can pr- probably put in just about any lens you can think of, and somebody would have posted a picture with it, and potentially yep. many pictures. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's it's a resource. It's absolutely fantastic. The actual search tool itself can be a bit janky at times, but you know, 
it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great tool. It's a great resource for actually building up about old letters. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And now for the first time in history, there are photos in that group posted with a Taylor Hobson two-inch F2. <laughs> I, think, I don't think I was the first. I think they were the You were the first. first. You're totally the first. I've searched that group in a lot of depth for that lens and no one has posted in it wow how about that well i need to post some more in there as well but that's that's the other thing i do post my pictures more if it's you know when i post a lens picture of some description or you know, a photograph taken with the lens i usually put it in there and then share it into our podcast group as well so yeah because it's public it's easy to do that yeah exactly and you can't do it the other way around um, but yeah i've got a few more photos taken with that lens i really do need to share you will become the world's leading KOL on that lens. Because <laughs> you're the only one who has it that actually shoots with it. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. right. <laughs> for, for, a limit, for a limited period only, because uh, it, it will go at some point. Um, okay, so I've more said where, where I am when we talked about the Facebook groups. Uh, let's say thank you to Kevin McLeod for our theme music, which is Octo Blues. And stuff on incompetech.com and that's it so I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and if you can be like Carl um yeah so uh, <coughs> good that you're still in one piece Perry mm. yeah I'm suffering some hardcore chafing because I huh. walked 15 miles today there what bl- blisters in, on your feet or something? No, I'd like under my balls. Because <laughs> all the, all the transport was shut down, and I was walking around the city shooting. And it was one of those things where like I walked enough that I, the first leg was fine, and then I realized I had to get home. Oh man! And so getting home without transit essentially made it twice the walk. Yeah, I came back and I was like, shit, I walked 15 miles today. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from the chafing, I'm okay, so I can, I can deal with that. That's good. And on, a, on another note, so do we have permission to use that as an outtake or not? Because that was that was recorded. <laughs> oh yeah, that's, <laughs> that's totally fine. 